it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer and the brewing industry and have a conversation with the people who make the industry what it is and see what we can learn from them. And this week we meet, or I should say revisit, Craig and Lance Masterton from Heads of Noosa Brewing. We first met the brothers almost five years ago when the brewery opened. For a startup, it was an impressive setup, especially when the business was running very counter to what were then the predominant craft trends. While hops and haze were the norm, Heads made a clear Japanese lager as its flagship and also put its beers in bottles. In a small brewing industry that has tended to follow the trends, it was interesting to watch the way the business has evolved and grown. Five years down the track, and with the brewery at least giving the appearance of growth and success, I wanted to catch up with Craig and Lance and find out whether the reality matched the appearance, whether they would have done anything differently, and what it was like to be ahead of the present lager wave. It's a great chat, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. As always, it's probably worth going back and listening to the first episode I did with them five years ago to hear what their plans were and compare it to what actually happened. Enjoy. Craig and Lance Masterton, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Welcome back to Beer is a Conversation. Thanks, Matty. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Thanks for coming up. It's actually great to do this. Like Normally, uh, since COVID, we've been doing so many of them just remotely, even if they are in Brisbane, because it's a little bit easier to uh, you know, make time. But uh, it, it's great to, to be here. And I think the last time I was in the brewery was in March 2019, when Pete and I came up. Um, Josh Donohoe uh, drove us around, and we, we interviewed you just after you'd opened um, and uh, had a great chat about, you know, everything uh, heads of noosa back then yeah that was actually uh after our opening and um, a little bit worse for wear so actually <laughs> it's nice to be in good condition for once that's i, I, I knew that it was around the time because I, I i did come up the day before i came to the opening but then we came back the next day that okay so th- that puts that uh, pu- puzzle piece back together i wasn't dusty <laughs> I, I, I was uh, i knew i had a big day the next day so uh thank you for uh uh having your wits together uh, the, 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 the next day anyway we tried yeah but man what a four and a half years since uh since, since you opened um you know coming up to five years since you opened because opening in early 2019 we had no idea um craft beer was still you know on on the growing uh edge of the wave and we had no idea what was just around the corner in terms of uh, covid how have you guys gone um you know over the intervening period yeah look pretty good i think in the grand scheme of things the last little bit's been a bit more challenging of course but i don't think we'd be the only one saying that i think uh yeah we sort of came out the right time with the right product mix and stuck to it and it sort of worked for us i think Make sure garner the support of the local community, which I think is important always. Um, and yeah, just good to have those couple of crappy years behind us, and <laughs> hopefully onwards and upwards. Although, are the Lance are the crappy years behind us? Because it sounds like the trade nationally, but also you're finding on the Sunshine Coast, 
that the trade has been down by a significant percentage? Yeah, look, it's just changed. The the crappiness has changed, I guess. <laughs> um, we can go out and be yeah. crappy rather than stay at home and be crappy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, look, COVID was a was a big one. Um, basically, the unknown of it, and I guess this isn't far off the same. You know, we we don't know, never know what's in front of us. But um, but this is just a little bit different, I think, with um, with the uncertainty out there, the with the economy at the moment. Um, yet yeah, it feels definitely feels a lot quieter than what it has been leading into this last last year or so. Um, so Although, yeah, I think there's some interesting times ahead. I'd imagine you don't have a great baseline to to work from because you opened early in 2019. You hadn't had a full year of trade as a new brewery without an established brand, um, even when COVID hit. And then the COVID period, I understand, was just so it, for businesses that did have baselines, it was just all over the place. So I guess you don't know what normal would be like. Anyway, hundred no, percent correct. It's um, yeah, we haven't seen a normal year yet, so well, maybe you are seeing normal, <laughs> uh, but, possibly, yeah. But you don't know what normal looks like. <laughs> exactly, true. Well, again, is is that a reasonable? Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I was just going to chime in and say I'd almost pay to know what a normal year's seasonality <laughs> looks like because it'll make life so much easier in planning. Uh, we might come back to all of that, but let's. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and you know, I have to fess up I, I think I fessed up when we spoke last time that you know coming up here you know craft beer was all about hops craft beer was all about crazy craft beer was all about you know uh, hype and things and suddenly we visited a brewery that was big for a startup um, when, when you guys opened 50 heck uh, brew house making lagers um, you know light pale lagers um, and putting them in bottles, which, you know, talking about running counter to what the prevailing trends were, you know, I, I was a little bit, um, you know, I, I was full of admiration, but also a little bit sceptical about, you know, how, how, how you would go. But, you know, I, I really get the feeling from watching and uh, certainly seeing the number of heads of Noosa umbrellas that there are around Noosa and the number of people that I hear who know the beer, that you seem to have gotten out and flourished running very counter to the prevailing craft beer trends. Yeah, look, I think personally we hit probably a, a niche in the market um, at that time where you know, people were looking for a little bit of something a little bit more normal, I guess. Um, I think backing that up, though, I, I believe our beers really do stand out as exceptional. And that, you know, if you came into the market with beers that weren't great, I think it might have been a different story. Um, but having uh, the malt Ford filtered uh, lagers in a bottle um, definitely was a point of difference in, in a number of areas. And it, yeah, look, it, it, it worked. It's, it has worked well, continues to, to kick along all right. Um, although we are still feeling definitely the effects everyone else is feeling out there as well. Um, but I think people are enjoying drinking this style of beer again. Um, and, and yeah, you're seeing that people, people are drinking it, but then buying it again as well. And they're the sort of beers that I, I would argue you don't get tired of, you know, because again, yeah. anything that's hype is going to have a, you know, it's a bit of a sugar hit. Like you get excited, but then it goes, whereas these are beers you probably don't, get as excited about except they're just good beers that do exactly what you want a beer to do is, is the way i would describe it yeah absolutely yeah i think it's a beer that you can always come back to and and would always probably have in your fridge to um 
to have one that's when, when you like it. That's yours, sorry. No, no, no. Again, I unashamedly say, you know, I don't think we've got any commercial obligations to say this or anything, but Heads of Noosa Lager is the one that is always in my fridge because I enjoy it. You know, when I'm just drinking something out of the bottle, when I'm cooking dinner or anyone who comes around that wants a lager, it's the one that I can give them that still plays into what I value about the, the, the brewing industry that's a local independent craft brewery making great beers um, but still is a crowd pleaser yeah absolutely and I've always got in my fridge too mate so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would hope so I got a tap <laughs> I, I'm, I'm interested you use the word niche um, when you're sort of talking about you, you found yourselves in a niche but it, it, it's odd that you know, crisp lagers is considered a niche. I mean, I, I guess yeah. if you're looking at the craft beer world, yeah. it was when you opened a niche and we, we can talk about the, the way that that's rolled on. But given that I still think, you know, 80 plus percent of the market is crisp lagers, you're not really, you know, are you targeting the craft beer drinker who wants a break from hops or are you targeting, um, you know, is, do you still even talk about craft beer or are you talking about are you going for that wide part of the market and with just a brand that has certain values i think the niche there is probably carving out a spot between mainstream and craft almost mm-hmm. yep we've you know obviously fit tickle the boxes when it comes to being a craft brewery but the beer styles the bottling the filtration all that's kind of lent itself to a more you know what we'd probably call a premium sort of product that you know tags onto the side of the craft market somewhere um, and like you said I think that niche bits that a niche as far as craft was concerned but obviously yeah potential to be a bigger play one of the reasons that you know again skeptical is probably not the right word but I did have reservations because I'm old enough to remember the craft breweries of the late 80s and you know, early 90s and well you're old yeah <laughs> thank you um, <laughs> but you know the original incarnation of Umundi when, when Umundi came um, and you know you had Powers which was very decidedly mainstream but still you know a, a new brewery but then you had um, you know, just in my neck of the woods Kelly's at South Brisbane and you saw a number of craft breweries spring up that were making the traditional European beers whether it was a premium lager like Imundi was or you know German wheat beers or English ales but the lager breweries were going head to head with the major breweries um, and they, I don't think they were even national in those days Carlton Forex uh, uh, was still Castlemaine Perkins which was very much a uh, Queensland um, only brewery but it still had scale and you had breweries that were going head to head with the major breweries and having to justify the value of a product that was fundamentally the same just a little bit more premium and that's where I saw you guys coming in uh, when you opened you know it was you were going up against the Asahis and the you know, premium um, you know probably Bogues style of, of, of beers but at a much higher price point um, was that a worry for you or did you know what, what was your think I, I know we've talked about this a little bit um a few years ago and i'd invite everyone to go back but you know what was your thinking back then yeah look i think it, it's still it, not not a worry it's something that we face every day um though you're 100 correct you know we are at a different price point to what those guys are at and and we need to ha- have that price point to be a viable business mm. 
Um, the things we do a little bit differently, I guess, sort of separate us from both the craft with with those different different styles and being malt forward and so forth. But then, um, you know, we are using quality ingredients. We're, we're taking the time to ferment properly. Um, we ferment at really cold temperatures to, to get that clean, cleanness in the beer itself. Sort of separating us a little bit from the mainstream guys that way. So well, I've never heard a brewer say anything other than we use the finest quality yeah, ingredients. ingredients. Yeah, true. You know, <laughs> it's probably the most overused thing. Um, you know, does anybody actually use shit ingredients? No, probably not. You're probably right. They probably don't. But then the, the, the time it takes to like, how, how long does your beer spend in tank, for example? Uh, between four to five weeks. Mm. Um, yep, we... Uh, we need that time to make sure you know yeast is is an inconsistency at times so that's where the variation comes in um also yeah reusing that yeast down the track so it can take a little bit longer in tank on the back end um so yeah you know that that time that it takes to to put that beer out really does does it benefit um make sure it's in in great great quality before it gets into a bottle how do you tell the consumer um, other than, you know, heads of Noosa and just sort of looking at the branding, you know, it's Japanese-style lager. Um, you tell a little bit about it. You know, Australian barley and rice play a lead role in creating this popular signature lager. There's nothing hype about that. You know, brewed, fermented and filtered with precision. You don't talk about, you know, this spends, you know, I remember Crown Lager time is the fifth ingredient, which was complete bullshit, yeah. but it was still <laughs> something that they marketed um, and to, to consumers to tell people why it was a little bit more expensive. How do you, you know, having four to six weeks in tank is a huge cost. It is. Um, to, to, to a beer like this. But how do you tell consumers that in a way that justifies them Mate, spending that $20 more? Yeah, look, it's slowly that we tell them. Um, you know, it, education is a is a massive part of what we what we do but i think at the end of the day the best the best communication there is actually tasting that beer for yourself um you know once you once people get it in their mouths it's uh they can understand it yeah, we call it um we call it liquid on lips lol <laughs> so that's a big part of what we do in sales big part of what we try and do in the marketing side is to just get, getting people to drink it and I'll, i like to think people can taste it too it's we hear that all the time like especially in females who wouldn't necessarily have a beer, they're like, whoa, that's, you know. I can drink that. I can drink yeah. that. Okay. That's, yeah. Yeah. So it's slowly, though, it takes time. Yeah. Well, and, but, it, you know, I have the moral conundrum. I mean, I, I think I've uh, spoken to to you about it before that, you know, I go down to my local bottle shop and, you know, uh, $27, $28 for a six pack of uh, Heads of Noose, you know, because I, I buy my own. And then you see, you know, Asahi or... Um, and that that is above RRP, by the way. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously they can um, claim, they, they, they can charge that. Um, but, you know, when you sort of see, uh, you know, Asahi for $22 or $21, um, you know, on special at 18, you know, I have a moral conundrum where I sort of think, you know, how much do I really taste the quality? <laughs> how much yeah, do I really taste sure. the time versus, you know, that's a, f- a few dollars in my pocket. Yeah, yeah. No, look, um, I can totally understand it. I always like to relate it back to... I, uh, I don't make that choice. I, I just have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's in your fridge, buddy? <laughs> um, no, but yeah, just relating that back to the you know, price of a schooner, for instance. I know that the off-trade uh, there with bottles, you know, people are happy to pay $10 a beer for it there so paying an extra extra um five six seven dollars for a six pack of beer um isn't isn't that bigger 
big ask when you put it in that perspective. And um, maybe people are seeing that, maybe they don't, but that that is definitely our niche, finding that person that is willing to to part with their, their hard-earned money um, on on a product that um, on a product that they know they like or um, is goes but it goes against some of the bigger guys and which they can get a bit cheaper so yeah it's um that that's that's probably the niche component for us what was the thinking behind creating a Japanese lager as opposed to a premium lager for example yeah look we just had a lot oh, of fun put that down to a trip to Japan I think okay yeah, yeah. it was it was inspiring just seeing the beers over there and how bang on they are compared to what's labelled as a Japanese beer that you find here in Australia. And if you look closely at the labels, they're brewed everywhere. They're not from Japan. The ones that are, you can tell because they got a little import sticker on them, but they're aged. You know, they've spent however long in a container and cooked on the way over. So trying those beers over there from as close to the source as you can kind of get, I was like, wow, why isn't there beers like this in Australia? So that's what sort of inspired us, I think, to go down that journey. Yeah, definitely. Brewing, uh, brewing a fresh Japanese-style lager um, here for ourselves to drink was the main main driver. But it's interesting, and I think it's something I've remarked on the podcast before, and I've certainly observed. Is I, I do the exhibition, you know, the, the, the Royal Queensland show, and just have a tent there, and everyone's got exactly the same brand, and everyone's got exactly the same sales point so no size nothing matters um just really the beer name and then when that people get to try it and you know i've noticed um you know if we have a crisp lager on from from another brewery a beautiful beer um if it's we normally only have one lager of a certain category on and it will just people who have spent a day fighting the echo crowds will just go, crisp lager that's exactly what i feel and it will just burn through and then I noticed uh, one day when we had a third of a keg of that, and I thought, oh, we're just going to burn through this the way that we're going. So we'll put crisp lager, uh, Japanese lager on because it'll go. The crisp lager just screeched to a halt, and the Japanese, because people were just looking across the boards, and well, crisp lager was what they felt like when they read Japanese lager. There was just something about reading that that you know that it's crisp, you, you know it's got all of those flavour cues. But then at the same time, there's just something about saying Japanese, um, the, the Japanese lager, because they're marketed here as um, premium imported beers, that Japanese has that crisp character, but then it also almost says premium as well. And if you've got the choice of the two at the same price, people are just instinctively switching their purchase. Was, was that something that you intended? Or is, have you noticed the same thing yourself, that people drink it as a Japanese lager or? We've heard, definitely heard comments from, um, you know, people in retail and that, that the Japanese factor. Um, but I, I see what you're saying. And no, I don't think it occurred to us that that no. would add a premium to it or anything. It was... And my experience or my anecdote doesn't make, you know, facts or, or, or data <laughs> or anything like that, but it is an observation that, I, that I've, that was very, very apparent. Yeah, they are, they are known for their attention to detail mm. somewhat. The quality know, and everything quality, that they yeah. do. I think not just beer itself. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it wasn't I don't think it was it wasn't a um a, a mental choice for us to go that way because of that. It was because of the quality of the beers that we've tasted and loved and and we added rice in as a component. Which when you talk about quality ingredients, you know, that, that costs almost double what we pay for or probably over double now for yeah. what we pay for malt. Um so that's that's where it used to be used as a cheap cheap okay, option. Yeah. Now now it's an expensive way to Why go. Why is that? Um, I know they've had droughts and stuff, um, okay. which has 
been an issue in the past. I'm yeah. not sure where it sits this season, but yeah, you pay you pay big money for uh, big money for rice itself. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Even more so than barley. So it's gone up more than barley has. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, it might have always been that way yeah, since we started in that last five years. It's always been. But it's all gone up. <laughs> yeah, it's all gone up. Yeah. But when I asked that question about Japanese, you know, using just even having that in there. Um, Obviously, you're attuned to the importance of name because your um, what was an amber lager is now sunset. Or, oh, it used to be summer it, dusk. It used to be summer dusk. Now it's amber lager. Now it's amber lager. Yeah. Um, same beer. Yep. Looks the same in a glass. You know, the the, the label apart from the words yeah. is fundamentally the same, and you, you've switched that around trying to find that that niche. Um, yep. Your hop seltzer, you know, it used to be hop water. You've yep. you've, you've changed it. And I, I know that I've keep falling foul of still calling it hop water. But, Me too. Um, <laughs> That's push ups. Yeah, <laughs> but you've changed it to hop seltzer because seltzer, you know that that resonates with consumers. You don't need to have the same. So clearly, you're attuned to the idea that names matter. You know, names resonate um, on, on some level. Um, talk, talk us through those two, and, and and what sort of feedback you got that saw you experiment. Yeah, look, I think the, the summer dusk amber lager thing was a good uh, lesson that we learned the hard way to stick to your guns because we were initially going to call that amber lager. And it was always the odd one out. You know, we had Japanese-style lager. We had lager 3.5. Um, you know, now the black Japanese lager, which are all very descriptive of what the product is. Summer dust didn't really tell you that, so it was always sort of the odd one out. Um, but I think literally our first festival, we had amber lager on the decal and then Everyone was coming up calling it Amber Ale. And we're like, come on, we spent a month in tank with this thing and you're well, calling it an ale. We saw that at the exhibition as well. No, no, we, 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 because Amber, again, it's, it's, you see the Amber and you just assume craft beer are ales. Um, yeah. It doesn't matter, so, but uh, really. It, but it's, uh, if, if they're buying, but clearly they're buying it on reading the Amber. So that speaks to yeah, somebody. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely been one big thing we've learned that consumers will walk past stuff they don't understand. So, mm. you know, being able to explain it without them even having to pick the bottle up or taste it um on the label is is basically where you need to be but that's also catching lightning in a bottle um in in some ways because you know the number of breweries i've had i've spoken to when they're planning and they're opening and they give you their thinking and it's the sort of thing that if you can't explain it you know in two or three words yep consumers just don't have the patience or the you know consumer it's a fast um consumer good yeah um And they, they just want to understand it instinctively. Sure, you can add to the story with a bit of background, but the the, the words or the name need to resonate with them on, on some level. Oh, absolutely critical. Yeah, it's amazing how big a part that plays. And that's been the biggest battle with the Hop Seltzer, I think, is educating people what's in the bottle. Um, I mean, it looks like a beer because it's in a brown bottle. Um, kind of got the light blue, like a water label, which, you know, doesn't seem to indicate much but the amount of times we've heard oh sorry i don't drink beer and it's like well hang on a sec it's <laughs> great because it's not a beer give it Could a go you put it in a clear glass bottle for example you you suffer light strike you, you would be, yeah cause, cause for the hops yeah I, I don't know how much you can go into the technical element of it but are the hops boiled um to to get in to get the flavor in there or 
It's the hops are in there, and the, the clear glass will let the sun through, so it's it's still susceptible to it. Yeah, it will. Okay, so yeah. so there's nothing you can do about yeah. that. Okay, you, you can you can add additives to it, but we tend not to go down that route because yeah. hop and stuff. Yeah, talking about craft. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, well, and I was going to come back to to craft, but whether craft matters anymore. But for things like that, clearly it, it still does to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, it's um. It's a part of what we founded the brand on, and, and something that we grew a big, grow, grew fond of as people. You know, knowing that it is good, good quality. Oh, yeah, I think that's the word. Quality is what we're going for, and pure, and yeah, no shortcuts. Everything that yeah, you know, to give the the best product by the time that gets to the consumer. But when you look at the cost creeping up, and you know the, the the time in tank, and you know, know that there are things that you can do to to to, to speed things up or you know make them cheaper and you know well did you ever find yourself oh will people really notice or you know (laughs) well look we are working on that constantly um as long as we can control the quality you know for instance we walked down past there today past the yeast propagation which is just getting commissioned Mm. and you know for us having that that lively yeast ready to go into a tank will affect fermentation times but it'll also add consistency and quality to that beer as well so it is definitely stuff that we work on but um we'll never shortcut it for for lack of quality when you see oh yeah again four and a half years ago you were very much in a market to yourself of making you know light lagers um you know at a time that everyone else was just going bigger and bigger and i think you know four and a half five years ago it was even before um adjunct you know the the, the really heavy you know milkshake style beers or the really heavy fruiting of things other than sours um and be making crisp light lagers then you very much had the market to yourself and were zagging when everyone else was zigging but having seen you know the number of japanese lagers that are coming on the market the number of chavezas the number of you know brewers that are starting to embrace that do you do do you um feel a little bit jealous for your patch or do you pat yourselves on the back and say what geniuses you are and that you know people (laughs) No, we've never oh, never done that. But um, which one? <laughs> no, <laughs> the genius part. Yeah, yeah, but definitely oh, not that. <laughs> it's certainly flattering seeing everyone else out there trying to do a Japanese style at the moment. But no, it's good to know that we were kind of the leading edge of that. It's comforting that we're our heads thinking in the right direction. Yeah, because it was a risk back then, as you alluded to earlier. You know, that no one was doing it out there. So what we were doing was something something a bit different to what to what else was happening so and everyone should go back and listen to the first podcast because that's yeah. where we really talk about the background and your backgrounds and why why you did what you did but again one of the things that fascinates me when i have these conversations and you know you know there's that saying the broken clock is right twice a day you know if, <laughs> if you're wrong long enough odds are sooner or later it's going to work the, 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 the way fashion but it's surviving um you know and, and sometimes you can have the right idea at the wrong time or you know you, there can just be something that, that mitigates against it you know what has fashion changed or and you, you were ahead of the fashion or you were wrong when you opened like what was the take-up when you when you opened because um to be honest and look just being brutally honest there like coming in we we grew up um you know stone and wood were a big part of um giving us information on on how to set up and you know we we lent on those guys a bit 
Um, and we hung out in, in the craft beer circles with everybody um, drinking pails and IPAs and everything and, and loved it ourselves. It was, it was great. Um, when we first opened up, it was like I'd never heard anyone speak ill of craft beer. Um, and that was the first time when they tasted our beers. They're like, oh, geez, I'm, I'm glad this is a, a real beer. Um, and it, it really, it blew me away. Like we hadn't come up in those circles. So it was kind of like we were always doubting whether that what we were doing was the right thing at that time. But I think once, as soon as we opened, we, we heard those stories and people were hungry for, for independent quality, um, easy drinking beers. Yeah. And I think the climate in Queensland just screams for it too. That's, we always knew we had to have a strong lager and that's kind of, you know, what drove us to brew the Japanese style. But then we just thought, well, now we've learned all that, why not? It's a bit of a waste if we go and not translate that through the range and carry that onto the other beers. So, I, I, I think as social mammals, we want to fit in. We, we want to do what everyone else is doing. And it's incredibly challenging to have an idea and back yourself in the face of criticism or opposition or just people doubting um and debt (laughs) well that adds a whole other layer of risk i mean people just want to fit in you know they want to wear the clothes um that other people are wearing so so they fit in um and there's no risk involved in that other than just being laughed at but when you layer on a huge investment and, and and very real material risk in backing your own judgment you know were, were were there moments of self doubt and questioning? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I I think it was more so the other way. I was, I would have been nervous um, investing what we did into something where we were doing exactly the same, um, and that was the comforting thought in the back of my mind before we before we opened. Um, was that you know we we couldn't set up on such a scale and try and do what two, three, four hundred other breweries were doing at that time. So having a point of difference was probably the the thing that enabled us to um you know invest as heavily as we did early on from my point of view i think just and observing like we didn't rush into this it was nine years from when we sort of said Mm. yeah let's do it to when we actually opened the doors so no short time frame but in that time i think we noticed uh, and coming from a trading background the craziness and euphoria around everyone going for more more of this and more of that and bigger strength and more hops and hazy and everything you know it just sounded like well this has got to swing back at some point as well and i think that just gave us confidence and knowing you know too like you said with the lagers and not really being a niche like it's not reinventing the wheel we've just made the wheel a little bit rounder and smoother i'd like to think (laughs) (laughs) so knowing at some point it would come back to that i think yeah yeah so over the last five years, are you willing to tell me how much you've grown, like what percentage you've grown in volume, you know, at the end of year one versus the nearly the end of year five? You're the oh, guy. Yeah, we do hold that pretty close to our chest, Matty. Yeah, yeah no, 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 complete, but, but I mean, clearly in growth. Um, how many staff have you got now just to... Uh, yeah, every payroll is about 45, including casuals. And Okay. Yeah. So that includes, because you've only got a, like a relatively small hospitality space here yeah. very lovely space to come in and experience the beer but you are primarily a wholesale a production wholesale business still that yeah. is our model yeah yep definitely you've do you guys listen to the podcast i, I, yeah. I, mean, I don't want to put you in the uh, you know, on on the spot um it's, it's okay if you don't but uh there has been a recurring theme of the people that we've spoken to um 
recently, you know, talking about hospitality, you know, that it, it's very hard to get wholesale growth um, and hospitality. And so people looking at opening multiple hospitality venues or growing the hospitality venue. Are you in, in that space as well or you're still very much wedded to the, uh, the, the wholesale? No, yeah. I think the wholesale market is where, is where we're at. Um, it's, it's kind of a very fine line between competing with your, biz, your own business between wholesale and opening up retail mm. outlets. Plus, um, retail is bloody hard work too. It's, it's, <laughs> not, it's not easy either. Um, so, yeah, look, that's definitely a direction we, we want to forge. Um, actually, I was just talking to a guy the other day and he, we were bringing that up, you know, back when, you know, Stone and Wood opened up and they, they had monumental growth year after year. I think it's just a different situation um, for craft beer these days where what used to take five years might take 15 years now to actually grow that market share. So, But you still just need to be you know, hammering at that, at that wall constantly to, to take your share of the, the wholesale market. And, and I certainly wouldn't put stone and wood in, in, in this case entirely, but I mean, it's very easy to mistake really good timing and a little bit of luck with genius i mean I, there was a lot of genius in stone and wood absolutely yeah. the, you know again they were another brewery that zigged when everyone else was zagging you know they went light um sessionable ales when everyone else was you know, that was at the depths of the ibu wars when everyone was going yeah. 70 80 90 100 ibus they created a 22 23 ibu beer that you could have three or four but still had those craft cues um but you know, it, it's very easy to mistake timing for genius, which is why, why I sort of think, uh, you know, how lucky were you in in, in timing um, when you launched? You know? Yeah, well, I don't, I don't I, yeah, it is what it is at the end of the day. Like Craig said, we spent nine years leading into it. So we wanted to make sure what we did was right um, before we did it. And but funnily enough, with nine years to plan, if you're still planning the same thing at the end of, you know, if you open the thing you started planning nine yeah. years before in a rapidly changing environment that craft beer was, you were at least five or six years out of date by the time you opened. We, yeah, we didn't know what we were going to brew <laughs> right at the start. <laughs> okay. we, we spent yeah. most of our time playing with pale ales and things like that. But as I sort of touched on before, we knew we had to have a strong lager for Queensland. And the plan was, I think, initially to have a mix like everyone, and it kind of evolved. So like, yeah. well, we've got... I guess it was four years roughly into that planning too. We didn't know whether we wanted to be a production brewery or a, um, or a, a bar, a, a brew bar. Yeah, so that sort of evolved over that time. But the initial initial um, years were all about trying to learn how to brew and, and having a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of feedback are you getting from venues now? As I said, I'm seeing a lot of... Um, umbrellas around your heads of nooseries you know and we're in your backyard so it'd be surprising if we didn't see great support for um, heads of noosa in noosa but what sort of feedback do you get from trade you know do you hear them sort of saying oh look you know the, the lager's doing really well but it'd be great if we had like a a pacific ale um under your brand as well do you get that sort of feedback yeah i think we normally um that that's where we are a little bit hamstrung i guess that's um you know if a, a bar does have a great pale ale on and they're looking for a, a lager um that's where we fit really well but yep. if it's the other way around they've got a lot of great lagers and it, another one's not going to fit their bill um it is a that that is a challenging market to to come across but um i guess something we face face all the time but 
it, it almost feels like the um, the lager story is coming back into it a lot more. Where and not and not so much lagers. I maybe shouldn't say lagers, but easy drinking um, beers, so, something that people can have, you know, six of and and not not be sick of, basically, not not overwhelm their palates. So where do you when you say that a venue can have a whole lot of great lagers on? Um, are you talking about brands or quality? Like, are, are you competing against other? You know, yeah. Well, like um, for instance, a, a, a mix of mainstream and, and craft mm. um, breweries, I guess. If if there's three or four or five lagers on, they've only got eight eight or ten taps. It's hard to find space for another one. Yeah, I, I think you're getting at like the product mix there a little bit too. Like yeah. if they've got mm. a you know, it might not suit some of the smaller ones to have two lagers and, you know, if someone else has got that tied up, then it kind of locks us out and we can't even and go who, after who, a who would be tying it up? Would it be another independent brewery or would it be one of the majors? And oh, someone yeah. giving away cheap beer. Yeah, often often, <laughs> oh, okay. often some cheap kegs. Right, yeah. okay. I mean, to, to me that seems like... Uh, it seems like a very short term thing for a brewery for, for a, a venue to do that just of take the, the the short keg and not have a good brand story um behind behind their beer i mean is is that a challenge for you we come up against it all the time um it's really just a matter now of giving it the time for them to sort of work out that it was actually better having having heads on if it you know even if it costs a couple bucks more it would it would pull through faster. Yeah, and, they pull through. They can sell it for more. Generally, it's yeah. So so quite often you're not competing head to head with you know like an Asahi um, on on tap. Um, Occasionally, yeah. Often though, they're they're pretty contracted and untouchable in a way. Yeah, that's definitely a biggest barrier is contracts. I'd mm. say. So still, because again, that's one of the perennial debates that that, that, that we have, and you know, that the IBA is tackling it. We, we, we do hear that. Um, that you know, I don't know if you saw the evidence that was given before Parliament. Um, the, the the breweries are basically saying, oh well, we're just giving the publicans what they want. You know, they're free to decide. And you're going, well, are they really? You know, are, are consumers getting what they want if you have to force them into a contract and then you dictate what beers are and are not on tap? Yeah, I think you're seeing that they're definitely coming back. You know, where it used to be 100% or 90%, people are getting more more of a percentage to play with for their independent taps, um, which works. It, it works okay for us at times because you know we we are a very solid brand and have a great great product to back it up. So we we normally find ourselves on one of those. Um, but for a lot of other companies out there, it it is hard. But hopefully, it gets it keeps easing that way where the percentages get more and more available. Yeah, I see both sides of it from the big brewer's side and, and obviously our side, but I mean, there's no argument about it that it makes it harder for us to get a tap. It certainly inserts friction into the market. They can't chop and change based on what the, the venue wants. You know, they're, they're pretty much locked into the, the, the contract, basically. So they can't try other things. They can't experiment. They, can, they can't be flexible. Yeah. But like Lance said, that, that it's slow. I mean, a lot, a lot of these big company agreements tend to be over two to three years. So it's not even you kind of just got to wait that time out until you know we've only been around five years, so <laughs> it's only you know one and a half that sort of thing. But I think we are seeing that. Hey, it's we are definitely open back people up. People are sort of being hundred percent or uh, or ninety percent. That's coming down to eighty or seventy, and they're freeing up that extra okay. percentage for the independents to play on. Because we did definitely see that. You know, at, at the start of the, what we saw as a craft beer movement, it was very high levels of 
taps and because the major breweries were so slow to respond to consumer demand, we did start to see a couple of years where as contracts came up for renegotiation, it seemed to be more independent taps. And then with the acquisitions of the Pirate Lifes, the Four Pines, the, the, the Bolters and finally Stone and Wood, that seemed to satisfy a lot of publicans that they were willing to go back to higher contracts because they could get everything that they wanted um, and have those craft cues at the same time. You're still seeing that there is a little bit of movement in the... Yeah, look, I, I totally see you. I think you're 100% correct. Um, but yeah, maybe stuff isn't dropping as far as we'd like it. But yeah, you're still around that 80, 80% okay. is probably pretty average, I think, to, to have a couple taps to play with. Yeah. The other thing that I, I, I'm fascinated about with the, the business, again, for a business that was set up at the scale that you did five years ago, and as a production wholesale business as opposed to a um, hospitality balanced business, you really do only operate in your own backyard. Like it's down to the Gold Coast. Um, you know, so from Noosa to the Gold Coast, you're probably looking at two and a half hours drive, um, you know, three hours drive at most. And that's basically, and, and I guess you would go north as well but a much smaller market there's a much smaller population to the north and a lot more spread out and yeah. a lot more spread out but yeah. you really are only operating literally in your own backyard still for a, for a wholesale business where we're seeing businesses that are probably your scale who are national um ranging or, or looking for national ranging yeah we've always been really cautious on how we grow um wanting to make sure that we can we can always service and and um and supply what were great quality products um yeah if, if you'd asked us five years ago if we'd be out of state you know in a yeah. big way by now we would have said hell yeah but then <laughs> exactly. throw a couple of years of COVID in there it just wasn't the atmosphere to really go expanding in and everything i think that trend of sort of local or locality localness whatever you want to call it for produce was on an uptrend anyway prior to COVID and then it just sort of went on steroids. So it just became a lot easier sell in the backyard and, you know, add weight to your comments there. I still think, what, 70, 60 to 70% of our volume still goes on the sunny coast. Okay. You mm -hmm. know, compared to Brisbane and Gold Coast and anywhere else. So it's, you don't get support like, like you do in your backyard. But also instinctively, uh, where Lance was saying that you wanted to go national, I would have thought that, you know, I've heard from a number of the businesses that were focused national. Um, you know, Mark Hazeman from Mighty Craft talk, talked about, you know, the national retailers, which is pretty much the easiest way for most businesses to go national, just don't want national brands anymore. You know, that they... Yeah, right. Um, so it's hard. So I would imagine that supplying your own backyard is much more organic growth but then also much more sustainable in that yeah. you're not going to have the same capriciousness of a marketplace where people can suddenly uh, snap back yeah the, the appetite there's as you said definitely suffered i think um but you know further to that i think what we found is you need that brand awareness you know it's in queensland and particularly sunny coast that we've got the tap points we've got you know events happening and you know we've got a tap room we've got you know we're around town ourselves so it's a lot easier to kind of grow that brand when you're there every day as soon as you go a little bit further and if you just show up on a shelf in sydney no one's gonna know what you are or you know but noosa heads has a national cachet like people know noosa um it's a little bit like byron bay it's the sort of thing that you know you, you can sort of see it and instinctively 
going back to that instinctive question, where consumers know, like that, they know Noosa, even if they've not been here. Yeah, I think if um, they definitely do, um, but you still need that other supporting okay. brand awareness and feel. And look, we even see that in Brisbane and the Gold Coast. It, it it takes time to build a solid base, and then it starts to grow organically itself a bit. It's really hard work that that first step. So, um, yeah, I think heading south uh, from here is definitely still a, still a goal at, at in in the right time for us. Um, but we need to be confident that we can support it really. After five years or coming up to five years, what are the things that have surprised you most or the things you've learned the most about the beer market that you were, would say that you're a little bit naive about going in at, at the beginning, even after eight, nine years of planning? Well, I guess we came in here wanting to brew beer. Um, so, you know, actually growing the business, building a team has been a big, big step for us. Um, you know that we every every focus was on on brewing beer building a brewery um that that was my big passion um so yeah coming in and actually yeah figuring we can't do it all ourselves and having to find the right people and, and really build a great culture was was a big part of it big learning experience for myself anyway yeah and probably the speed at which things happen nothing happens as quick as you think yeah 100 <laughs> um you know even even around town like i say we've got the best support we've got close to home here it's not like that happened overnight either it's kind of that's yeah, taken took years itself yeah. taken years yeah and well i mean we were the guys from brisbane so initially we were you know who are you guys little yeah. bit. but we've managed to you know the everyone around town sort of knows who we are now and i uh, believe trust us and has welcomed us and you know part of the community sort of thing so that took a little while i think to build as well but you're the guys from brisbane on the sunshine coast which now has 22 breweries or yeah well could I've be lost count. Three. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, how has that gone is how, how crowded is the market and is that another area where having a fairly distinctive range of beers does help you yeah having that yeah. point of difference helps and but everyone's got their own niche in a way as well between um sort of brew bars and and production wholesale side yeah it sort of it has found its own sort of fit in a way yeah and and i think still like it's we're probably the highest brewery amount per capita. I mean, you go to Brisbane. I, how many? How many down there? It's, it's still a lot. There, there's a lot, but I mean, not the concentration. You know, that's where Sydney's in a west is probably the. You know, you, I'll let you guys juke out who is actually the craft beer uh, capital. But you know, <laughs> the Sunshine Coast. To Josh about that, mate. <laughs> certainly has a monumental claim to it um, for, for a whole range of reasons. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's surprised us when we started up five years ago. I think we might have been about number four or so from wow. memory. So God, that's it's quick. come a long way. Yeah. When you open again, as an outsider watching and you know even standing here and looking, there hasn't been. You know, I've seen some breweries that have, you know, really. Uh, I mean, convulsed isn't the right word, but they've 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 opened with an idea and they've iterated quite dramatically, trying to find what their model should be and what their niche should be and they've tried all sorts of different things as an outsider looking at heads of noosa you know your brand is still the same you know there have been small little tweaks where you've obviously you know learned a little bit and implementing how much is what you are doing now what you intended to do five years ago or how much has your business plan changed you know how, how much have you had to change what you intended from five years ago i thought i'd be fishing more but (laughs) 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 
Um, yeah, look, I you think need to it's... work for your mates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You guys hiring? <laughs> um, um, yeah. Yeah, but no, I think the brand itself, like, yeah, from the outside, we've been pretty lucky that we didn't sort of push in different directions early on. In, internally, the brand has definitely found its own feet and grown organically and sort of gone in directions that we never fully anticipated it going in you know coming into it we're looking at what what we're trying to build as a as a brand and you know we had ideas but it's sort of naturally found its own own way it takes time to find your own identity and even that poster on the wall behind me brand values you know that took you know that was probably three years in before we could nut that out Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. But I mean, I, I guess there are things you learn about business and you know, how to build the, the, the culture and those sorts of things. But just in terms of the vision that you had for the brewery, it, it, it doesn't feel like, apart from growth, it doesn't feel like there's been a huge change in folk. Like you, 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 you've stuck to your knitting with lagers, um, you've stuck to your knitting with bottles. And actually, I, I need to ask you about yeah. that, you know. How has bottles worked out for you? Has that been an advantage? Again, because it's distinctive compared to everybody else, or has it been a... Yeah, we, we get asked every day about cans. It's a double-edged sword. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I think it works well for our brand, being that aiming for that premium sort of ground. Um, sits well in a restaurant. I think there's still a big part of the market there, particularly ours. The lager drinkers who prefer to drink out of a bottle. Yep. Um, and I'm, I'm one again. I'm one of those. But who's asking you for cans then? If I, is it the bottle shops? Yeah, like for instance, um, the guys up at um, uh, was it Rainbow Beach up there? The last stop before you get to the barge to Fraser. Fraser, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they you know that they, they come here and have a beer and go, look, we love your beer, but we can you do it in cans for us? We'd sell it for you every day. Yeah. <laughs> I tell them we do. They're just fifty liters. <laughs> <laughs> have, have, have you thought? about doing a you know co-pack yeah or sort of doing you know doing bottles and cans yeah i think look ideally that's that's going to be the the goal in time um we have had a look at machinery with our styles of beer being so light and delicate um any sort of oxygen pickup really does affect it Mm. and to do it for us now um it really got to invest properly and spend a lot to actually get a a quality machine to do it In, in the very early days um you know, would have would not have been an advantage for us because basically being an unknown brand, you that only ever stock one skew anyway. Yep. So we sort of just halve our volumes in each way. But now we are getting known. I think we could we could support um, two different packages. So that, that that is the goal to get there. When, when we do, we're not sure, but got a couple of interesting things up our sleeve at the moment we're looking at so fingers crossed okay that, well, yeah. well, well, well no, nothing you want to sort of uh, <laughs> announce. I just have. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, again, you know, this is where it's very hard to separate your personal opinions and your, your personal preferences. And you know, I grew up where you drank from bottles, and there's just something about you know having grown up drinking from glass f- for quality, and then cans were always the thing that you took when you're on a boat and things like that. That you you can't disassociate that. And over time, you can a little bit, but I still, you know, as I said at the start of the interview, if I'm in the kitchen, I won't pour the lager into a, a glass because I'm drinking, still drinking from glass. I'm not getting the, you know, the full Cicerone effect of swirling and sniffing and those yeah. sorts of things. But yeah. to me, it meets that purpose in the time. And I'll even go camping. Um, you know, it's a pain in the ass yeah. dealing with bottles. It is. Um, but it's... 
It's worth it. It's worth it. Yeah, like it, 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 it's it's the beer I want to drink, and it's you know I'll I'll, I'll work around that. Um, yeah, but it would be more convenient. But uh, exactly right. It, it, is it a hard? You know, have you ever regretted being in bottles, or it's just a? No, I think it's been. Um, it, it's worked well, to be honest. Um, I'd rather be this way than being just in cans. Anyway. Okay. Yeah, but in an ideal world, as I said, I think both is probably the ideal. And in restaurants, it certainly, you know, it, it, it connotes a much more premium experience yep. having a, a, a bottle in a restaurant, for example. Yeah, and that is a big point of difference for us, definitely mm. there, where we can sort of approach it from that angle as well. Last question, and again, I, I could just keep chatting um, for forever, but last, what is next for Heads of Noosa? We are coming up, you know, early next year will be five years. What's next? You know, have you got more growth planned? Have you got anything interesting lined up or it's just keeping on keeping on and slow incremental steady growth yeah i think we're getting to the stage now where we've um we're starting to do limited releases we're, we're looking to do that every quarter if we can mm-hmm. um to, to line up with the seasons um how do you do that in a lager um yeah well we've done done in the past like a, a doppelbock uh baltic porter yep um the next one imperial next. version of japanese lager that yeah. was mm-hmm. yep so there's still plenty of room to play out there yeah um you know ipl is another one yep um so there's there's plenty of room to play under the lager banner still and and find find some really interesting styles yeah. a chaveza maybe or oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at some stage probably an imperial one sounds all right yeah <laughs> german hellas or like a, a, yeah those sorts of exactly hellas or, or, or does that actually jungle. do they need to be you know more extreme versions of beers can because would a hellas for example go up against your, your, your mainstream you know, your, yeah. your flagship for example look I think that could could well be the point there's definitely cannibalization if it if it's too similar mm. um, but for instance our our black Japanese lager that that started as a limited and, and just got a hell of a response mm. um, so we we went as quick as we could to get that into into pack and again another one that we road tested at the exhibition and people just loved it they saw the color of it but then when they tried it you know yeah. it's, it's got that real to his old it's a delicate um, yeah yeah delicate flavor for what it looks like yep um which we we didn't know what to expect you know all our experience with darker styles um people are very shy of so to see it find a place um in the market so quickly has, has been very surprising well guys thank you very much for again great comment congratulations on you know keep coming back to five years but it's uh you know on on the success that you've had and uh you know might long continue Mate, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. good to see you, Matty. Well, can't wait to thank speak you. to you after the next five. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Craig and Lance Masterton. And when I say that Heads of Noosa Lager is the beer that is always in my fridge, that's not a paid announcement. It's just the thing that I've come to notice because it is the beer that I can serve to anyone that comes and I enjoy it myself. Now, we'll be back again this Thursday for our last episode of the year, looking at all of the news of the week and a bit of a reflection on the year. Hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, thanks for listening.